If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey, about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you doing, my friends? Thanks for all the nice responses to my conversation with Dr. Christopher Shade last week. Seems like there was something important there for you. And uh, we're working on a, a part two for the fall to go a bit deeper into what you can do when your body is struggling to restore balance on its own and some actionable steps that you can take. So today's episode is a very special one. It's less of a conversation and more of a recounting and documenting of our family's loss. As you've heard me mention on a couple of podcasts probably, my wife's aunt Seema died due to COVID complications about a month and a half ago. And Bella, her daughter, who endearingly refers to me as cuz, even though we aren't technically cousins, <laughs> reached out to me after listening to one of the recent podcasts I did about COVID and said, if you're up for it, I'd like to tell my story, uh, the story of my COVID experience with my mom for the podcast. And after we chatted preparing for this, I understood what she intended to relay here and, and that it was both important and timely. She also told me about how difficult it's been to hear people who have no experience making claims about the, about the virus, calling it a hoax, politically driven by Democrats, that the numbers are being inflated, calling COVID-19 an old person's epidemic. She kept very good notes and in some ways, these are just the facts. As a person who studied science for most of my adult life, the erosion of faith in science in this country is incredibly frustrating, especially at this time. This is not the first pandemic, nor will it be the last. It's the first time, however, that in an age where in science we're able to get almost immediate information that nearly half of us question its validity. And my question is why? I happen to know a number of scientists, partly due to my work and because of the podcast, but most of us in medicine know less than a handful. And if you're not in medicine, you probably know zero. And that's partly because scientists work very quietly. They're not big talkers in general, but contemplators of mysteries. And if God is in the details, they work very closely with that higher power. They're fact seekers and only the facts that can be proven. They test hundreds of thousands or millions of times to get information. And even then, they don't make claims of 100% truth because they know that forever is a long time for something to be continued to be verified as true. And yet, we're willing to believe a tweet or a Facebook post or a newsfeed article we've seen only once that sounds convincing. And I challenge us all to think like scientists right now, to sit with the unknown longer and withhold judgment, and just listen. What we hope to present here in this episode is a blueprint to help us all understand 
what to do if you, a parent or a child is exposed to COVID-19. It is also to impress upon everyone how real this virus is and how it preys upon the weaknesses of each individual differently. Bella also hopes that by sharing this story, it helps our family members who had to go through this experience from afar because of the risks of getting and spreading COVID in our health systems. It's also a tribute to the empathy and humanity of the care providers in our health systems who gave Bella and her mother incredible support through a very difficult time. This is her story. I have no idea really of, of what the timeline was when when mm-hmm. everything started. And were, did you test positive for, for COVID first? Oh, no. At the end of June, my mom had told me that her best friend and neighbor, whom they've been kind of like, I would say that they're kind of like a pod together. Yeah. Where they, um, my mom is the one who did the driving. So they would go grocery shopping carefully that kind of thing so they they were kind of a pod together she told me that um she wasn't feeling well that she thought she had a cold and i was like oh mom you you can't go to her house anymore yeah you you need to avoid her and then it kind of it was a chain reaction from there um it was all around the very last day or so of june the first few days first week of july okay And so then my mother started experiencing pretty much the same symptoms. And her friend um, had this like one or two days where she was feeling better. And then she got much worse. And my mom started um, feeling the same symptoms, like mild, kind of like, this might be a cold. I'm I'm feeling run down, you know, a little nasally. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, And I was already, like, my ears were perking up. Her ears were perking up a little bit about this. So we were keeping an eye and staying in and staying away and stuff like that. And um, then she called me on July 2nd, just as I was kind of getting ready for work. I was about to go sit at the airport. And she said that um, her friend was taken to the hospital. And when they did the rapid testing over there, it came back positive. Okay. And I just kind of put on my professional voice and said, okay, here's what we're going to do next. And started making the phone calls, the plans, the testing appointments. So my work already had a, uh, a plan in place. If you have any kind of exposure, whether it's on the plane or at work, or if there's any kind of, if COVID is in question here, yeah, they have a, a process. They've been updating us on the process. So there's a lot of details. I wasn't completely lost in the dark here. And of course, were were you you getting tested for work? I wasn't. No, not at all. I just, uh, what the first thing I did was I called them and I said, I can't come in today. I've been exposed Gotcha. because I had, um, while my mom wasn't feeling great and it was kind of, it felt like a bit of a mitigated risk. I mean, you know, we love our parents and we help our parents out. And so she wasn't feeling well. So I went over to her house. I helped her out. I got her medication. I made her comfortable. You know, you do what you do. Yeah. What did you what, what did so, what did you do for medication at that point? Because you you had you were working on trying to get a test scheduled, right? Right. So at this point, it's um, 
a lot of the advice that they give you, even the even medical doctor, the medical doctors kind of also tell you that what you do is everything you can to be comfortable. So if she had, we basically treated it with the same stuff that you would treat a cold. We got yeah. the Dayquil, we got, well, something to let her sleep, something to let her have an easier time breathing during the day, made sure that her asthma medication was nearby, um, made sure she still took her medication, tried to get her to eat. That was the hard part. Right, yeah. Almost immediately, my mom just, she just got, she was very fatigued and she just, she had a fever. So we, we, we worked on fever reducers. And at that point, July 2nd, I was maybe feeling a little bit tired, like I hadn't slept great. Yeah. But no symptoms as of yet. So my mom got the fever. She had, she had almost identical symptoms as her best friend, except her best friend um, got hit with the lung stuff faster because I don't know why, because, but um, my mom got hit with gut stuff faster. Yeah. So it's, you just, you don't know where this virus will hit you. You just have to know what your weak spots are, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And it's hard because it's, you know, for some people they were, you know, if they had, you know, allergy issues, some of the, some of the initial onset feels like allergies, basically. That was me too. I was, I was doubling up on, on allergy medicine, I think the next day. And I was just, my, my first real symptoms, if I look back on it, I played cautious, but I didn't always immediately connect every symptom because you, you have to, you want to walk this fine balance of like not panicking, right? but also careful. Like not everything is COVID. We still have plenty of other, d- the normal diseases, the seasonals, everything's still out there. Yeah. So you treat it how you would if you know what it is and you make yourself comfortable. So my mom's test was scheduled for Friday. My work started a case and immediately took me off. Like I was basically off until we knew more. And from there, it'd be as long as I needed. Okay. Um, but basically I was no longer allowed back at work unless I had a negative test and then some. So how, how long did it take you to get mom in for a, for a test? Oddly enough, I was able to get her in that Friday. So Wednesday was the second. Okay. I was able to get her in for a test on Friday, uh, through a drive through and myself and my husband were, uh, Fahajim and I, we were able to schedule an appointment at our doctor's office for Monday. And because she was obviously exposed to somebody who tested positive, oh, right, right. You know, it was more. It, it, I felt it more emergent to get her in wherever I could because at that point, you know, uh, Arizona was already starting to get a bit overwhelmed with testing, um, not shortages, but but turnaround times were starting to get longer. Yeah, yeah. And then there was, you know, you there was word that the negatives come back faster or the positives come back faster. So you just, you never knew what was going to happen. And there were a lot of both false negatives and false positives. So it was never like a 100% thing, but I think, you know, clearly in this situation with mom being older, you were, you know, focus, focusing on her first here. And I, yeah. And, and just because um, the symptoms were lining up so it was almost like that perfect timeline that they speak about when they want to talk about an uncomplicated example. Yeah. You know, her yeah. friend a few days later, mom, a few days later, me. Yeah. Just right off the bat. Yeah. And I'm not going to say that, you know, I think she got it from her friend. I can't, there, there's no, there, there's no way to like confirm or deny who where, because they live in a building 
with a lot of high-risk people and a lot of elderly. And Arizona's mask mandate was still kind of, uh, it depended on city by city. And there was a lot of like, hey, if you could just, you know, make sure that you are careful around high-risk people. So you really, we have no way of knowing. And and it was an apartment there, even though um, nobody was out and about very often anymore. They definitely didn't do any group activities. There was nothing like that. Does your mom have any sense of, of um, your mom's friend have, have any idea of where she may have been exposed? You know, um, because I know sometimes in apartment buildings, like they've, they've seen these, they've seen, you know, traces between, you know, within uh, uh, lines of, you know, wings of buildings where they think it got through the, through the ventilation yeah. systems. I actually think it was more likely in a public area. Okay. Where inside um, the building? From another generation. Yeah. I hate to, like, I, I, there was some, I think that there was a bit of riskiness there where they thought, you know, if we're sitting um, a little further from each other or, oh, if this cafe is open, it must be okay. What if we hung out a little bit with yeah. people who don't show symptoms? Oh, my granddaughter wants to come. My cousin wants to come. So there's really, um, within a close-knit community of immigrants and and people with English challenges, it it, it would be really hard to trace. What are the immigrant populations in the building? It's actually a building with a higher number of Russians, and they kind of all... And um, and mostly older, right? My mom easily had a nice little social circle of about 15 old ladies. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not the actual population just itself. But, you know, she also had like a few of her very closer friends who we all kind of were like friends with each other's families. We we celebrate big and we celebrate together. And yeah. this time has very, very different. And I've been taking all the precautions because I feel like I was very exposed with work. Yeah. So basically, I so to speak, avoided my mom like the plague. Yeah. You know, I hadn't hugged my mother since March easily. That's just the most emotionally hard part of it. Yeah. I wore the masks. I didn't go into her house. We took all the precautions I I could and I brought her food. But for all I know, it could have been the people who didn't wear masks at the grocery store around them. Yeah. There's just no way to know with them. And and I felt like early on, it it was so hard to, to figure, to sort through all the information and if you're a you know not a native English speaker, you're, yeah. you're a lot of the information you're actually getting from other people, <laughs> not necessarily from a news source. And I mean that was some of the stuff I was hearing early on was like, well, where did you hear this from? Okay, and even you know even with even with native English speakers, I, I felt like some of that was happening. So it's, it's got to be challenging. I feel uh, you know my mom was always watching the local news for the yeah. briefings. The guy- briefings and whatnot. Yeah. But I also know it's also getting inundated twice as much on Facebook, on WhatsApp, on friends, on Yeah. Right. And unfortunately, some of those messages were really bad. Like yeah. uh like some who of your those friends messages, are in that situation, right? Get over it. Or there's a way to avoid it completely. If you just take this little supplement or that little pill and even if you get it, don't worry they'll do something about it and it'll help Yeah, and it'll just kill you. And that was the hard part is when, when my mom was in the hospital, 
it was just so like at, at one point she was just not quite understanding why they wouldn't give her the medication that cures it. Right. Which right. is the hardest thing to hear. You know, you just, you get the sinking feeling. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I called um, the two people that I had, I had gone to, I had met my friend at a Costco the day before we both wore masks. We did a very quick trip and I called her and I said, Hey, I know we, we're pretty social distant, but I have a definite exposure. I, um, she, it, she did not have any symptoms and she was like out for the count too. She's a flight attendant. So they, I, I think they took her off for a couple of weeks just to make sure. Okay. And, and then how, how long did it take mom to get tests back? With my mom, um, she had the test on Friday. Uh, I want to say somewhere on Monday morning, early Monday morning, oh, she got her fast. positive it was very fast. It was, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, wow, that is real positive, isn't it? So what, what, what did they tell you at that moment then to, to go home and self-quarantine or? So, yeah, uh, by this point, we were already self-quarantining. Yeah. Um, by then, I'd already had my first 102 degree fever. Okay. On Saturday, I woke up with chills and a fever and... It was just a matter of like, okay, I've got my test to know for sure on Monday, but more than likely the way this is going, it's unlike, um, I, you know, I had the flu in December and this hit just as fast. Yeah. Yeah. Is what I'm going to say. Like one day you're okay. The next you're definitely not. Yeah. And you definitely not allergies. And so for me, it did go straight to my weak point, which is allergies and my nasal stuff. So yeah was what I felt the first few days and then fever and chills. Um, by then my mom was already, and, and it, that's when it became really difficult because she's in a very high risk building. So she is in quarantine in her own house. I am now in quarantine in my own house. And even though for all intents and purposes, we could say something like, oh, well, we both have it. So, you know, it's cool. But I couldn't go there. I couldn't help her. And all I could do is do everything I can over the phone. And my mom was really struggling with an appetite, mm. too. And that didn't hit me until, I want to say, by the end of the first week. And did, did uh, your husband, Hashim, did he, did, did he get it, too? Nope. He actually got a negative uh, result. Uh, so we got our test back. His came back a little bit earlier. We took our test on Monday. He had resu uh, he had results by um, about five days after, and it was negative. And I had my positive result on the seventh day. Did he just stay clear of you, or how did how did you guys manage at home? Honestly, um, we didn't. We just hmm. again, it's sometimes you have to make a mitigated risk. He was already exposed to me. He'd already been exposed to me. Yeah. So he wasn't showing any symptoms. He never had any symptoms. He never had any sickness. So we just kind of put, we put him on the same timeline as me. Gotcha. And he wasn't going out um, or anything anyway? No. Oh my gosh. My community, pretty much the minute I knew and the minute um, I told a few friends of mine, my little support community here is amazing. Um. I didn't have to go grocery shopping or anything for the, like the next three weeks. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty nice. Yeah. So my first week was just kind of basic, kind of flu-like, and then I had a couple of really good days. 
And in those couple of days, my mom was getting worse over the phone. She would have these um, blood pressure drops in the middle of the night. And did did she have any other health-related challenges prior to this? My mother was 70. Uh, She is a diabetic, a type 2. Okay. Um, She had asthma and she had some digestive issues, some less than happy guts. Does she use an inhaler for the asthma? Yes, she was using an inhaler for the asthma and controlled that way. The diabetes was controlled with metformin. Uh, She also had high blood pressure. So she wasn't like the the most unhealthy 70-year-old in America. Right. But she also wasn't some of the most healthy. Yeah. She's she's fairly active even with all the things she has, right? I mean, that was that was kind of what, what I remember because she she lived yeah, with us for a while in, in Brooklyn, so you know, for right. so yeah. that same level, like I think maybe she was just a little more tired, like, um, but no, she was still just as active. Yeah, she just maybe got a little more tired, a little more easily. Yeah, her diabetes was relatively under control. Uh, high blood pressure was controlled with medication. Like she was, whatever she had was con- easily controlled with the medication that she had. And she was more active because she had a, a, a better social circle in yeah. this building. Yeah. Like she moved there for years. And her friend, honestly, that, that best friend that I mentioned earlier, it, it, she was just a very good, you know, hey, let's go out. Let's go do this. Let's do this now. Let's do this activity. Let's not just, you know, sit around watching TV all day. Yeah. And so the quarantines and the mandates and the lockdowns changed all of that. Yeah. So at what point did did, did things uh, sort of appear to be bad enough that you felt like you had to have somebody see her? I literally have a notebook where I was tracking some of this stuff, too. Mm. That was, there's a couple of useful things. You know, sometimes it's really hard to dig through the good information and the bad information on Facebook. Yeah. But there was like two pieces of information that were actually very useful to me. Um, one was keep track of your fever, which my doctor also recommended. And just, you know, write down your experience because it's a little bit blurry. Oh yeah, for sure. And the other piece of advice, oddly enough, this worked, this, this was helpful for me in my second week with COVID. It was, um, at, my friend dropped off some balloons, just plain old party balloons. Yeah. And I made that my breathing exercise on a daily basis when my breathing got bad, when my symptoms, my symptoms hit me more in the second week. Was was that something that you had read or that had been suggested? It was something that somebody suggested. They were like, I was in one of, it, it's in one of my health groups. It was in, the, in my exercise group. And um, somebody was talking about how they started having trouble breathing. And so they were just super mindful about making sure to exercise their lungs. Yeah. And so this is one way that they recommended doing it. And, um, I had talked to, I'd been conversating with the nurses, the doctors in general, there was just like, there was a lot of talking to medical personnel, um, whether it be about my mom or about me or just, you know, a little bit of chit chat. And they were ex- a lot of explanations about what your lungs do and why you want to make sure to be mindfully aware of your breath and get your lungs as expanded as possible when you have COVID. Okay. But uh, I think it was about five, uh, five days or so in with my mom, definitely after she got that positive test, we just kind of, we got her over to my house because she just wasn't eating and she was really having a rough night for the past like two nights. Okay. 
And uh, she had called the paramedics to her apartment at one point because her blood pressure plummeted. Okay. And her blood sugar spiked. And by the time they got to her, they checked her vitals and they had said that they, they, that the hospital would not like her vitals were getting better and she wasn't bad enough for the hospital. So they, so, so they, they just said to basically try to stay, stay hydrated and eat if you can. All the hospital might do for you is, is hydrate you. Yeah. And she was just like, no, no, I'd rather stay home. And that was something that, you know, Arizona at that point was already having to mitigate. Uh, we were at that point, we were already, I think, at about 90 percent capacity. OK. She was sounding worse and worse as each day went by. And so we was, got it, what, was it the cough that was sounding worse or what was what was it that that was felt like it was getting worse? She was just getting weaker and she couldn't eat and she just needed supervision. She yeah. needed supervision, even though they were telling her she's not bad enough for, or that the hospital would not be able to do something unique gotcha. and in, in fact you know they we uh the general like seem, school of thought is if you can get through this in a quarantine state in the safety of your own space it's better well i mean hospitals aren't the aren't the most healing environments to be <laughs> in for long periods of yeah. time so, so there's, there's, i'm there's sure it's true exposure there. Also, the risk of her exposing more yes. healthcare work right. with the supplies, shortages. It, it was just, you know, you want to try and get through this at home if possible. Yeah. But I, I felt like she could not be unsupervised. She just was not able to do this without help. It was hitting her so hard and so fast. And it was especially the, the eating thing. She, all she wanted to do was sleep. And all I can do is you know, try and convince her on the phone. Did you take a bite of chicken soup? Can you do this? Can you get some water? Yeah. And so um, we finally got her to my house and the cat came along with her because I just kind of, I figured she's not going to be there at my house just for a day or two. Right. Yeah. And as it so happened, it was kind of starting to be my second week of being sick. And at this point, I had been able to control my symptoms with Dayquil, NyQuil, and then for the most part, Tylenol was keeping my fever down. Okay. I was trapping my fever three, four times a day. It was, and when I say down, I mean, I, I had an average of 99 to 101 for two weeks straight. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, as a, as a general rule, I tend to run cold. Like 97.7 is my normal. Okay. So it was definitely a fever, but it wasn't out of control, but it just had everything else that a fever does, the weakness, the sleepiness, the tiredness. I'd lost my appetite at that point. My breathing was still okay. My mom's breathing was a little harder, so. What was her fever she, like? It was close to 100 as well. It was a fever, it was a flat out fever. Yeah. But the Tylenol was also able to control that for her. So she was at my house and there was just still no appetite. At that point, her doctor had prescribed her a couple of medications that he was hoping would help uh, with the lungs and where the COVID goes, basically. Yeah. So, so there is, um, you know, we hear about some of the more famous medications, but there is still a general treatment that's supportive of it that you would do for uh, general respiratory infections and and struggles. Mm-hmm they've been using without needing to that that were um low risk versus reward 
what, that makes what, sense. What were they were they were they talking to you and and suggesting anything respiratory wise for her at home? It was just keep her keep her hydrated. Try to get some protein in her to control her sugar, which we were struggling with. Yeah, the blood pressure, which we were struggling with. And it was mostly keep her as comfortable as you can and uh, keep that inhaler close by. And uh, let's get her started on these two medications that are hopefully going to help with the lungs and maybe fight off some of the inflammation. Well, what was that? Uh, they had uh, prescribed a Z-Pack. Yep. And a, remind me again, a Z-Pack is an antibiotic. Yeah. An antibiotic and a steroid. Yep. Okay. To be truthful, her guts were not, she was too weak. I could barely get her to take her regular medication. It was becoming very clear within that one day that caring for her at go, at home was getting way beyond my abilities. Yeah, yeah. And that's considering I have first aid training. I have some training as to like what to do in certain medical emergencies, I guess. You probably have to do it annually too, don't you, for work? Uh, well, some yeah, regularity? We, well, yeah, we always we always have to keep that knowledge at the forefront of my mind because, you know, very often on airplanes we do, the most common things we see is uh, people who need a little more oxygen, people whose blood pressure drops, whose sugar yep. goes higher, and the occasional, you know, I have this particular medical issue. And so... Um, my general knowledge is is, you know, if your if your blood pressure is dropping, let's keep tracking this. You know, what you can do, what we can do. I I also was very close to my mom, so I knew her medication, I knew her health history, I knew. Yeah. And so we had had that conversation in the afternoon, uh, where I was just like, "Mom, this is this is getting very much beyond my skill set." Yeah. I think you're no longer safe at home. I think we need to start thinking about going to the hospital. And um, she was not thrilled with the idea, and but she agreed with me. Yeah. And actually, one of the reasons that she was not thrilled with the idea is because there was, she had specifically addressed this kind of thing uh, with her and her friend both, actually, that they had been told that the hospital is the place where they're going to kill you. Yeah. With this. Yeah. And so that's not true. The hospital is not trying to kill you. Right. It really instilled uh, that fear of seeking help in them. And and, there, and that's, and, you know, a lot of what, of, I mean, it's it seems like you guys didn't wait a, a terribly long period of time. I think there are people probably who wait even longer than, than you did, but that is that is one of the you know, one of the causes of, of people waiting is, is some of those ideas. And sometimes it's, you know, because of previous experience in hospitals, um, depending on what your ethnicity is or your background or what the, you know, there's the, a general situation already. Yeah. But I think also with COVID, um, from what I've been seeing is I've had to keep up on some of the, uh, popular memes and forwards and conspiracy theories going around is yeah. there was some, information spread around that hospitals, if you reach a certain age, they just don't care about you. Right. They don't bother you. And uh, Arizona at that point, because this is a conversation I did have with her doctor at the hospital when she was admitted, uh, is uh, when our shortage 
or uh, when our capacity reached about 90, 93%, the governor did uh, declare that he was allowing the hospitals to implement a sort of triage. Are you are you familiar with how triage works? A little bit. I mean, I, and I, a lot of it just comes from secondhand from hearing people who are, who have been working in hospitals. So to summarize, it means that hospitals, if they're shorter on supplies, they have to make some hard decisions about how, who gets what. Yeah. And so that that was a, a some that was a declaration that the the governor had made that he is allowing the hospitals to do that, um, and that's a scary thing to hear on the news. Yeah. But uh, the hospitals themselves hadn't actually implemented that. Yeah. There there was a lot coming out of of Italy in those early days because they had, you know, they got hit so quickly and so hard and have such a aging population that like triage happened immediately almost. Right. At that point, though, um, the hospitals themselves had not implemented it. At least my mom's hospital did not because I yeah. flat out asked. Them. Okay. But when they, um, when I called the paramedics, it was because her blood pressure was not getting under control mm-hmm. and her blood sugar was not getting out of, under control and she was not able to get hydrated or stay hydrated or even eat. Yeah, it seems like it seems like you had to do something at that at that point. Right. Keeping in mind her breathing, her inhaler was helping her. She was struggling to breathe, but she wasn't it wasn't anything I hadn't seen when she had a cold or a flu. Yeah. So I called the paramedics. The paramedics um came we took her outside to be in, um, checked out by them. So there's a lot of precautions that are constantly taking place. Um, masks on, take her outside so that they can examine her in an environment, hopefully not too exposing for them. And so for their machinery, again, her vitals were coming up again. They did not feel that she was going to get any extra care at the hospital. Um, I disagreed. So they had helped me put my mom in the car. So I, and I had clarified that I was also COVID positive and they said, you're going to wear a mask. You're not going to go into the emergency room. They're going to wheel her in. You're both going to be masked. You, so they're like, if, if that's what you feel you need to do, you know, um, it was also a hospital choice that I made. There's, there's a particular hospital that I knew was preferable for me. Okay. And as it turns out, it happened to be the hospital with the best um, record for getting people extubated. Okay. At, at this point, I think it's still maintaining that record. It's just an amazing hospital with the best doctors, the best treatments, and also they've been by comparison because the numbers are are they, the numbers were awful, but by comparison, they were doing as as good as as they could yeah. in the city. Yeah. And that's the hospital we wanted mom in if that's what we're going to have to do. So I did take her to the emergency room. I wrote out a summary of what was going on with her, what her symptoms were, and any of her health problems. I sent along the list of medications, and I never even got into the lobby with her. Uh, A nurse came out. She took my information. She took, we put mom in a wheelchair, and they took her in. And then a couple hours later, I get a phone call and they said that they are admitting her for sure. And here's the part that really like it, it that that's what tripped me up. They said we're admitting her because her 
oxygen level is at 80%. Yeah. And that was like, you can't tell that just from the fact that she was breathing a little harder. Yeah, I know for sure. What COVID does is it creates a situation where your body is not getting oxygenated as well. Yeah. And so I guess, and that's what got mom admitted. And so she spent the next three or so days and they um, had her on steroids and antibiotics and she was breathing so hard and she was on all the support and she was still really struggling with getting um, her body oxygenated. Yeah. She was utterly uncomfortable and utterly miserable. It's a loud room. They have the um, air purifiers in there that are just constantly buzzing. Everybody's dressed up in masks and full head to toe PPE. Yeah. I, I got to see her on video a few times. I got to talk to her on the phone once or twice, but this is definitely a lonely experience. It's scary. It's yeah. it's just even from my viewpoint of being the outsider, going into the hospital for COVID is a very scary and a very lonely thing. Yeah. And also from the beginning, from the moment she that she was admitted, the kind of conversations that we had with the doctors, it, they can't afford to have that optimism that we're so used to from our doctors. Yeah. I mean, we have our health professionals on a pedestal and oftentimes with good reason, they do amazing things. They perform <laughs> things that seem miraculous. They yeah. heal. And while, and yeah, and I know there's many different therapies and many approaches to medicine and all that, but at the end, a healer is a healer, but they can't um, afford to have that optimism anymore. And at that and at that point in July, they they had seen enough. That they'd seen enough that knew what a what kind of treatment has been. Uh, the treatment course has been improved. Yes, by far since January, since Italy, since um, New York, by far the treatment has been improved. They've learned a lot more about what to do as far as support versus creating a situation where your body becomes so dependent on the support systems that you can no longer live independently. Yeah. But, but for the most part, it's a lot of it. A lot of it is support. It's not uh, a cure. It's help your body get through this longer than the virus will stay there. And I'm sure they, they their optimism or or lack of is is based on what what they're coming in with in the first place, where their oxygen levels are, what their pre existing stuff is, and knowing how yeah. serious things are that they can probably you know size that up yeah. within a matter of minutes. Incredibly serious. Yeah. It was incredibly serious from day one, from moment one. Um, pretty much every conversation I had with the doctor from day one included a palliative care nurse and included a chaplain. And so my sister and I, every single conversation involved an aspect of, does your mother want to continue with this? Is mm -hmm. this something that she would want to go long-term? Mm -hmm. The palliative nurse was amazing. Um, she said that, you know, what helps to keep in mind sometimes when you're working on deciding, you know, what, what, a, what the course of action should be is, is this a bridge to improvement or not? Oh yeah. And these are conversations like from moment one, from day one, the yep. statistics were not great. They were better than they would have been in January, but they were not good. Yeah. So, um, about three days in my mom, uh, still wasn't oxygenating from what they explained to me is, um, the ventilator, 
allows her lungs and her heart to rest so that they don't fail because of it because they're exhausted. They're working so hard, you know? yeah. Right, right. So um, my mother was put on a ventilator, and they explained to me that before she was on the ventilator, actually, the conversation we've had uh, is that my mother was a candidate for uh, covalescent plasma. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, at the time, we were in such a shortage, and it was still in a research phase um, that there wasn't any plasma to even give her. My mother did not qualify for remdesivir, so they continued with the steroids. They did continue with the antibiotics, and those were helping. She had a few good days by comparison, and by good, I mean um, all told is uh, it was a very scary like first week or so yeah. where every single conversation was she's still on the ventilator. She's still getting about 90% oxygenation support, 95%, 94%. She was getting nutrition through a tube. Yeah. On July 8th, she was admitted. On July 12th, she was put on a ventilator. Okay. The highest levels of support. She was prone for a few days. And then um, a few days later, and every single time, they would also try and turn her over and see if she can, if she was doing okay without being in the prone position where she was laying on her stomach on the ventilator. Yeah. Because does is that helps take the pressure off of the lungs. And once she could handle being off the prone position, they left her on her, uh, they, they had her ventilated on her back. Okay. And elevated, so, or, and I mean, her head, head elevated? Uh, in, yeah. Inclined position? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically, they did the least amount of everything that could be done in order to keep her being the one in control of as much as of her body as she can be. Yeah. She was, she was sedated. Oh, she was fully sedated. She was on paralytics for a few days, but as soon as they can take the paralytics off, they did. As soon as they can lower the amount of oxygen that was necessary to keep her oxygen level at 90% or higher, they did. So because um, with this amount of critical care support, there's a very high risk of becoming so dependent on it. Right. And you're trying to get the body to to respond and start, you know, you 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 know, there's do there's its own there, work. yeah, do, do its own work. There's all sorts of things that happen at at varying levels of, you know, hormonal response and, you know, her mm -hmm. her, her lymphatics and all these things need to kind of like kick kick up and start getting rid of some of this stuff. Right. And managing it, you know, managing the the fevers and the the infections and anything that's going on on its own, mm -hmm. and and I feel like we when we were getting information from you, it was sort of hard to tell because it was maybe it was, every couple of days or something, and it seemed like yeah, the first few days were bad, and then there were some like sort of positive signs, so it was sort of clear like her her body at some point really kicked in and like tried to to do something, and then was was there a point that it just started to kind of like turn again? So right around, I'm kind of conferring with my notes here. Um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I can be an incredibly <laughs> organized note taker. <laughs> right around July, I want to say the 21st, 21st, 22nd or so okay. is when um, things were getting up. It was a lot of days of like the same stuff. To us, it was a good day when nothing went worse. Right. Like, you know, if she was staying on 90% oxygen, for or a 90% uh, ventilator support 
for a day or two, that's high, but it's not going up to 98. Right, right. And so um, around the 21st, 22nd, she was able to do about three hours in what's called CPAP mode, meaning the ventilator tube was still there, but mom was controlling the breathing. Okay. So for about three hours, she was able to successfully breathe and oxygenate her own body. And so at that point, the the conversation began that, you know, let's talk about a longer term form of care. If she was able to have two negative COVID tests, there's different hospitals and policies vary. But for this particular hospital, if she had two negative COVIDs and was showing signs of improvement or uh, two negative COVID results and showing signs of improvement, then she can continue on to a longer, uh, longer care facility, long-term care facility, mm-hmm. or rehabilitative facility where she could be more comfortable, where she can start on the actual process of re- coming back from this. Yeah. By then, we'd already had conversations about what kind of life-saving maneuvers we would want them taken to take in case of anything at every given moment. Yeah, yeah. You know, stopped if her breathing was completely never going to be her own, you know, those kinds of conversations. Gotcha. How, what, what's quality of life for her? How, how aware was she of, of these, these kinds of conversations at this point? Was, she wasn't. Okay. She's sedated pretty much since, uh, she was sedated from July 12th. She, um, was not aware of them. However, um, my mom and I had multiple discussions partially because when she lost her dad, uh, our grandfather was on a ventilator for a while and, you know, she, she experienced his end of life experience. And so uh, mom and I had conversations about, you know, what she considers quality of life. Is it a feeding okay. tube? Is it a breathing tube? Is it gotcha. a level of independence? So she wasn't aware and she was in no place. She wasn't able to make those decisions on her own, but she had always been very clear about what those decisions should look like. You know, there, there's no way to prepare for this. This is a scary situation, yeah. but there was a certain amount of like the ability to be able to answer those kinds of questions. Oh, it's so, so helpful. It is so helpful to know what this person for whom you are answering for wants yeah. to be very clear. Yeah. yeah. And I really, I so, so strongly believe that even without COVID, even without any kind of this people should be having those kinds of conversations with their closest family members, especially the people who would be making decisions if in any given, you know, if God forbid, whatever happens. So um, we were talking about long-term care. And at that point they said, you know, she would be much more comfortable with a trach tube. We would like to um, keep her on the ventilator, but with a tracheostomy, procedure mm-hmm. so that she is more comfortable so that we can take the paralytics down so that we can start, you know, lowering the level of sedation too, because all of those medications have an effect too. Yeah. You can, you can only do so much of that before it starts affecting your lungs. Yeah. And so really for, for the most part, you know, her blood pressure was stable. Her blood sugar was stable. She was getting nutrition. Pretty much everything was mom's level of oxygenation and her ability to sustain her organs 
with oxygen. Yeah. That was the biggest, that was everything. Her kidneys were working at a comfortable level. Her fever was under control easily. There was no fever, really. So she, in, in some ways, she had basically re- recovered from the, the, the COVID, the, the coronavirus part of it, but the impacts of what the virus did to her other systems, especially her, her, her breathing system or, or cardiopulmonary system, were still what were... That's under question. Okay. Because uh, one of the things that we talked about was that they're going to do a tracheostomy procedure... And so they were going to put a tube on her that was meant to be temporary. And uh, they also do a COVID test at the same time because they want to know if she is past the COVID part. Okay. And unfortunately, on the 20th, the test that was administered on the 23rd of July still came back positive Ah, three weeks later. Her lungs were still, her lung x-rays were still showing covid and they were still positive for COVID. Okay. So at this point, uh, unfortunately, her friend did not make it. It was the same thing. Her friend went on a ventilator, and she was on a ventilator for a while, but she had a different treatment too. Hmm. She was um, she was a candidate for both plasma and, and remdesivir, and um, literally, it was a week before my mom and. There wasn't a shortage. She was able to get it. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, her heart gave out. And um, at this point, I still have COVID. I, I started having, I lost my sense of smell on the 8th. I very much remember distinctly just this weird sort of silence in the world and realized, oh my God, I can't smell anything. And and this is like two, two weeks later, basically? Yeah, for me, it was on July 8th. So about a week and a half. And okay. it was the second week. And there was this weird spike, and I've heard that a few people have this weird spike of energy towards the end of the first week, and then some. Sometimes the weird stuff can happen. And, some and I'm still feeling like, yeah. like I had this spike of energy. I kind of expected my test to come back positive that I took on the seventh because come the eighth I had the most distinct thing, which was the lack, the the loss of sense of smell, and I was just tired and I was achy and I lost my appetite in the second week and. My, I would say that my second week with COVID was much worse. And there was about a five-day period with the balloon yeah. <laughs> that I had, I was unable to complete a breath. And was your, was, was your energy just, was just crummy at that point too? I was just so exhausted. All yeah. I wanted to do was sleep. Yeah. I was just so drained and so tired and I just... Well, you weren't really getting to rest probably either, you know, with the emotional impact of that and having to be pay, paying attention to every everything else with mom. The day really kind of began to have a schedule. It, it began to have a schedule. Um, after the first, I, I would have a catch-up conversation with the doctor in the morning. I would be catching all of the family members up on whatever needed to be. Yep. And, or whatever, like, even if it was just, you know, all right, everything's the same today. Um, so it was catching up the family in the morning, chatting with the nurse in the morning uh, after the shift. Usually I tried to catch them around a little bit after the shift change so that um, we could catch up a little bit. They would. Um, the staff at the hospital was just amazing. They were so kind. They were also um, 
they were they did as much they went above and beyond in such a weird and horrible and crummy situation. I mean, these yeah. are people working twelve hour shifts every yeah. time. Yeah. And in, so in masks. Uh, everything it would be um I think I think I, I talked to about four or five different nurses over the entire period of time and it would be the same nurses, uh, a day nurse and a night nurse for about a four or five day stretch. They were very respectful of her traditions. Like they lit Sabbath candles for her on Friday. They sent me videos. They sent me photos. Um, we kind of decided not to overly inundate. So I became kind of the voice for the family or for my sister and yeah, myself. Yeah. And then, uh, I left voicemails for her every single day and night. And they would play that for her, you know. Oh, that's really nice. I don't know if she heard me. I don't know if that helped or not. They They said that she would like respond a little bit more like move her hand more or something yeah yeah but they played voicemails for me they did as much as they could to make us feel as connected as we could be when we could not be there at all yeah so it was just like you know a morning catch-up and then an evening catch-up so my day just kind of became became you know mom's progress on mom what's going on sleep rest, do nothing, attempt to eat, yeah. keep myself hydrated. I, I was very into making sure that I stayed hydrated and checking my oximeter. And at some point, by the time I, st- I started having trouble breathing, I had an emergency inhaler. I have no asthma. I have no, I have um, one autoimmune disease or autoimmune condition that's been in remission and under control. Mm-hmm. And I've been taking my supplements and working out more. And I'm also 36, where I was 36 at that moment. Yeah. So my condition, literally, with all the hard time breathing, the no sense of smell, the utter exhaustion, the fever, my case was still considered mild. So it was just a matter of stay comfortable, stay home, just get better, stay hydrated. And uh, I kept in touch with the doctor. I had a video call. They sent me in for a chest x-ray once I started having trouble breathing. They saw the same thing, which is COVID lung. That's what is referred to yeah. as COVID lung. And with the, the balloon exercises, the reason we were doing that is um, part of what the ventilator does, part of what mindful breathing does, is you expand your lungs as much as possible so that they aren't stuck together and limited because COVID makes your lungs very sticky yeah. and limits it's part of what like keeps that oxygenation level so questionable yeah and so i slept on my stomach as often as i could um and then you know eventually i started getting better my fever was starting to be more on the side of 99 on a daily basis as opposed to a continuous you know 98 101 99 102 yeah yeah i found myself needing the inhaler a little bit less which it wasn't really, the inhaler was helping at the time, at that moment when I used it. Yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't helping me for hours on end. You know, it, it came, it, it came away like, you know, the same way that you just get better with time from any condition, you start noticing slight improvements. The ability to load the dishwasher without having to go take a nap afterwards. Do you, do you have anything that feels like a, an effect from lung function wise at this point? I mean, we're now we're, we're a little over a month from, from that. It took me about a week and a half after like my last symptom 
day, I guess, or like my first couple of days where I was able to blow up a balloon fully without choking and running out of breath. It took me about a week and a half to be able to get back on the treadmill. I was still sleeping quite a bit. Um, I had a second set of x-rays done and it was showing uh, resolving lungs, but it was still showing COVID lung just better. And they said that it could take weeks and weeks to fully feel better. Um, Up until about, I would say maybe a week ago, it was still like if I worked out, like I've been back on the treadmill, I'd say for about two weeks now. Okay. Afterwards, it just, there's a certain feeling that you get after you've like run really, really hard. Yeah. Where you feel like your lungs, not like they're going to explode, but there's just like you're suddenly really aware of your lungs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wasn't running on the treadmill. I was doing a 20 minute walk. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's definitely, there was definitely some lingering effects and I'm sure it was even worse with stress, but for the most part, I would say that I am about a hundred, I'm a hundred percent back to my normal daily activities and routines. I'm just not at a hundred percent of where I was before COVID yet. Gotcha. So as far as mom is concerned, when, when you're, when, when you're sort of, you're, you're at, you're starting to feel some pretty major effects Mom's, mom's, you know, sort of stable. I mean, just from what I remember, mm-hmm. it seemed like for, mom, a, was it a couple of weeks or how, how long, how long did she sort of stay in that place where they were, I mean, what, and after they, after they did the, the trach thing, how, how long, so, how long did she stay with that? So the trach was done on uh, the 23rd. Okay. And she went through with flying colors and unfortunately that COVID test still came back positive, yep. but um, within a day or so, she was not having the best days anymore. She was uh, spiking a fever and her kidney function was starting to get a little challenged. And so they had to kind of mitigate the fever using cold blankets and lower the amount of Tylenol that she was being given to control the fever Okay, because that affects your kidneys. Yeah, yeah. So we had a few like, oh, these days are not as good as the other one. So then we had a few days of where it was those things like fever, kidneys, not the greatest lungs, x-rays, like her COVID lung was very pronounced. And, um, but it was still a few days of, okay, it's not worse. It's still controllable. It's still, you know, we can manage this with the medication. We can support her. Uh, Her level of oxygen support on the ventilator went up, but then it was a, they were able to still get it down and down and down and down. Mm-hmm. She needed less of the ventilation support to maintain a 90% or higher oxygenation level. And it was one of those, honestly, it was one of those stable days where I did my morning review with the doctors and the medical staff. And it was like, Okay, well, it's pretty much the same thing as yesterday, uh, but we were able to reduce the blood pressure medicine. Now she's on a very small amount of this one medication, and you know the fever is being controlled just as it was with the cooler blankets, with you know only one dose of Tylenol. The the kidneys are being challenged, but they're still in a um, in a stable enough level that we're comfortable being where we're at. And that was my, I would say, 9 a.m.-ish or so conversation. Okay. And I'm pretty 
and texted everybody that too, that, you know, she's not in the best place at the moment, but she's not, but she's stable. And that's all we can ask for at the moment. That afternoon around 5 PM. And I remember this distinctly because I had been talking to my friend about how it's literally been a month since I had seen my mother at that point Mm -hmm. in person, which was incredibly unusual for us. This was I would say that's the longest I've gone without seeing my mom since the days of overnight sleepaway camp on the <laughs> East Coast. Yeah, it was that unusual to not see her or, and especially to speak to not speak with her every couple of days. And I had just I remember making that mental note, and then I got a call from the hospital, and they said that her blood pressure had plummeted, and that they were doing everything they could to get it back up to level, but it wasn't coming back up. And um, this hospital has a particularly, I guess, unique, there's a, every, the unique policy with this particular hospital is also that if you, if, if it has to come to that, you come, you can come visit in person. Okay. That is the one time you in. Okay. And so um, the doctor who was speaking to me said that they're doing everything they can, but it's not good. And, it just, it took a, a downturn so quickly and that can happen. And did they, did they think it was because of, of other organ failures that were starting to happen or did, did they have any idea at that point? That basically uh, her blood pressure had plummeted so low that her other organs were failing. Okay. And that um, they told me that they will... Uh, I called my sister. I got her on the line. We were asking questions like, you know, does she need to come down? And they said, yes. And she said, I have a six hour flight. And they said, that's too long. And then they said that they would um, get my husband and I permission to come in. And that's something I knew was, that's what they were telling me that they were saying that I was coming in to say goodbye. Yeah. And that, and and by the time and and we were like maybe 10 15 minutes out from the hospital and when we got there um they had updated me again on what's going on and she was at let me see if i remember correctly 60 over 50 blood pressure and okay. had continuously been so despite the fact that they had maxed out multiple medications yeah. and multiple procedures to try and get that back up and her her body wasn't having it at all her organs were failing and that it was basically at that point the machines were keeping her alive so was she was she cognizant of of you guys being there at the end no uh you know what i don't know she was she was um they were able to remove the paralytic completely okay um but she was still sedated yeah and I don't know if she was cognizant, cognizant per se, but, you know, sometimes we put our own emotions on things. And I, I feel like, you know, I was able to video in my sister, I was able to video in her brother, and yeah. I was able to hold her hand, even though we were all covered in gloves. Yeah. And I, I feel like her chest was rising extra hard when we spoke to her, when yeah. we how much we, we loved her and things like that. Yeah. So 
I like to think that she was cognizant that she was surrounded by people who love her. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of a big, you know, you know me. <laughs> I'm kind of a big believer in just ener energy and and just you know the and the power of touch and how much we sort of pick up from each other and yeah. you know I'm 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 certain that that you know people whatever their whatever their state is they can they can tune right back in sometimes to that even and I've and I've worked with with people dying before you know clients who you know have asked me to work with their family members and stuff so. You know, I, I, I know what those signs are. I, th I think I know exactly what you were probably seeing too. Right. And so, you know, I could see her, her, her head was moving a little bit. Her chest was rising a little bit differently. And I do, I, I, she firmly believed in that kind of stuff too. Yeah. She had a, you know, like any, <laughs> any good Russian, you've got to have a certain level of superstition in your, in your life. So you have <laughs> to, the other planes around you. <laughs> yes. I, I'm very aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. sure. But um, we, were, we were given in such a horrible, horrible situation that had uh, the outcome was incredibly statistically not in our favor. Yeah. I think she held on a lot longer than she would have if, let's say, this was January. Yeah. I think yeah. they gave her the best fighting chance they could. I think that we're still learning a lot about it and then, and we're still learning a lot about the treatment of COVID-19. Because this is such a, um, this disease has such an asymptomatic aspect to it where it's still contagious whether you have symptoms or not. It, because I keep thinking of this in terms of like, my job puts me in contact with multitudes of people on a very regular basis. Yeah. My job is also very strict about those very, very basic precautions. Yeah. Mask, wash your hands, physical distance as much as you can. Yeah. Very, very basic stuff. And so I haven't, I didn't get this from my job. I wasn't, even though my exposure risk was much higher. Yeah. I, ironically, I think, I think, you know, the way people think this is going to happen is it's going to be passed from an, uh, a younger person to an older person. But as we, as we, you know, I think just as human beings, we, 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 you know, it's, we, we let down our guard a little times because we, we, we need to have that close physicality to, with, with other people. And, yeah. you know, I think that's, go ahead. The theory, because the young people, they assume will take higher risks or engage in, in uh, or be more prone to ignore health directives or something. Mm -hmm. They just kind of think, oh, the older people will just stay in their homes, but the younger people, they're going to feel the need to go out and not social distance. And I and I think to some extent that's that's true what we're seeing right now in Minnesota. We just had a spike this week and you know, most people are guessing that it's because, you know, the, the, because of the age group who's being tested positive right now is, is kind of in this, you know, late teens, early twenties, you know, to sort of 40 age group. 
that it's probably coming from, you know, college courses or students coming back to dorms. And I'm sure there's going to be some of that. I mean, I know, I know who I was as a college student. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure I would have made mistakes, but at the same time, you know, there, I think there's for, for some periods of time that some of those people are going to, are going to be asymptomatic or may get something and fight it off very quickly. And at the same time, everybody experiences like, you know, we have this very, very long list of possible symptoms, but, and, and people still experience it differently. Um, at the same time that I was going through this, I had, um, another friend who was going through it around the same time as me, Yeah. who, um, all she had was a two-week-long headache and a positive test. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not even kidding you. Yep. And she had the same thing where her husband was on the same quarantine schedule as her, but he never got any symptoms. He never got any positives. He got all the negative results. Yep. And then I have yet another friend who uh, got sick a little bit earlier than me. Her and her boyfriend both had it. It's like three months. She had it at least a month before I did. They both got it. And she is just now getting released to go back to work. And her boyfriend had to spend about a week in the hospital. It just hits everybody so differently. It's almost like, you know, we do have the basics. We have the, oh, if you're a high risk person, if you have underlying conditions, be extra careful. But the fact is, there's no way to predict how it'll hit you. Yeah. And scientists are trying to understand this is science in real life. They're still collecting a lot of data on what could possibly be the reason for this, what could possibly be the reason for that. You know, we're just not there yet where we have all the answers. And I think eventually we will be. Yeah. And a lot of these precautions aren't necessarily so that nobody ever gets it again, but to just try and not get it until we have some more, we, some, some, proven treatments, some answers about what uh, risk factors there are to this, whether it's how exposure works. Because if you remember, uh, um, do you remember it was like around January? I want to say around, no, February, March, when things first started locking down, there was like all these news stories that were like, if you have this kind of surface, this is how long the virus will live on it. Oh, yeah. And they never said on it they said will live on it you know like if you have stainless steel if you have glass if you have porous countertops yeah and you know respiratory droplets and all that stuff well even since then they've discovered that um the virus doesn't survive nearly as long as this i don't know random nine days number that was being put out in march right yeah absolutely i think that we're learning a lot more about that and and knowing that it, it also it 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 can it can linger in in the air in poorly ventilated places in these droplets for a significant amount of time, um, you know, with somebody who and and now we're also starting to realize that you know the the most infectious period is is probably not that different than other flus, which is like the you know the, the day or two before and the day that we start having symptoms. So you know there right. there there are some things that are just sort of standard, and I th- I think it's sort of important to 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 know some of that stuff. And also know that, you know, the, the the most simple thing we can do right now is to prevent that th- those respiratory dr- droplets from entering into the air. So, you know, masks they're not perfect, and you you do have to cover your nose though, <laughs> and, 
and you know, but 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 the reality is we're 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 basically just you know we're risk managing here. We're trying to bring the the viral load count down as low as possible, so that if we are in an indoor space and the, and the ventilation isn't great, that our you know our viral load exposure is is lower. And you know, I mean, if if we could learn more about that, you know, I you know how how some of the worst cases came about. You know, I think a lot of times we're going to find that they they were happening from high viral loads indoors, you know, between somebody who was, you know, just about to become symptomatic. My personal uh, observation is probably that there is a certain viral load factor here. Yeah. My mom's house is a very small apartment. It's not as ventilated. Yeah. My house is roomier. There's a lot of ventilation going on. Yeah. And... You know, it seems that even though my husband was close to me, he did not get the sickness. Yeah. We don't know exactly why, but I do think that there is a certain level of exposure. Yeah. I was exposed to my mom in her house very much so. Right. Yeah. But yeah, you know, um, maybe this is a little bit off topic. I mean, it's sort of on topic, but it's a little off. But uh, with the mask wearing, you're right. You have to absolutely wear the masks correctly. We have to wash our hands often, physically distance and all that. But I really wish there was a little bit more, a little more information and teaching on how to properly breathe in a mask. Because I know that the first thing people wig out on is, I can't breathe. I can't breathe in this mask. Yeah. It's keeping me claustrophobic. Well, on a regular basis, most of us don't breathe properly to begin with. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I think if we could breathe through our noses, ideally, that would be better. You know, we can't, we right. can't, we can't put out as, as, you know, as we can't aspirate as much through our nose, so it's it's you know we're probably limiting the that, and I think I think we can filter a little bit better that way too, rather than if it just comes straight in our mouths. But to to like to your to your earlier point, you know, as far as you know, limiting our our potential exposure as much as we can in in whatever ways we know. I've been thinking about it a lot, like. The way that you know, I've been I've been working with you know people with back problems for almost twenty five years, and you know from the beginning, like in the nineties, when I was treating people who you know already had back surgeries, a lot of times the, the at that point the kinds of things that they were doing for back surgeries were just you know causing more problems sometimes than 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 they were helping. And so as I was, you know, getting more and more involved in that kind of work and and telling people like let's let's do whatever we can to to see if we can, you know, in terms of movement, in terms of working on mobility with what was going on if it was like a bulging disc or, you know, something that may not need immediate or even, you know, a hip problem for that matter that may not need immediate surgery. Let's try to strengthen that area and mobilize it as much as we can and see if we can get the symptomatic stuff to go away. Because the, the longer you can go here with allowing surgery to, to improve, the, the better your chances are of having a successful surgery. And I've been thinking about that a lot with as it relates to COVID. Like, since we don't know, just discarding masks and saying, well, they don't really work that well anyway, isn't really you know, the, in terms of risk management, it doesn't really make much sense. I think about it a lot like that, that sort of managing whatever the symptoms that we have with our backs are until things improve enough. I mean, obviously, if it becomes a, a, a challenge of lifestyle where people can't walk very well anymore and stuff, you have to do, you have to try something. But, you know, I've helped a lot of people get out of that situation 
and sometimes not have to have surgeries. But sometimes 10 years later, you know, the, the, there's just too much degeneration going on in the disc and they have to have surgery. But a lot of times 10 years makes a huge difference in terms of what we know medically. Oh, totally. I mean, uh, that's kind of the situation with my knee. Uh, when I when I injured my knee hiking, um, they put me in physical therapy because they said, look, this is either going to help you because we're going to be able to strengthen the areas around your knee so that it will make up for the fact that you have a weak spot and an injury yeah. and give it a long amount of time to heal. Or this is physical therapy that will get you stronger so that when you do have surgery, you're coming back from a better place when you're recovering. Absolutely. I, I, call, it I, pre, maybe, I call it prehab. <laughs> Yeah, yeah that's, I think I've heard that term before. Because it I just it just helps, you know, the recovery. It just shortens your recovery time so much, and improves so the the results of the of the surgery most of the time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I mean, I th I think that's something, you know, with with COVID too. I mean, I think we can we can do everything we can possibly do too to like make sure we're sleeping well, hydrating ourselves, eating as well as possible, you know, limiting how much we're abusing things like drinking and, you know, should try to stop yeah. smoking right now, if possible, those kinds of things. And, and, you know, we, we know that certain kinds of things in, in excess, like sugars and stuff will, will basically work against us too, if we get, if, if we get something. So it's a good time to pay attention to that. But, you know, the masks are something that, that we can do. And I know it's not, it's not perfect. I'm not, you know, I'm not enjoying wearing a mask for work right now either. And no, I have to cute masks. You, you have some cute ones? I've tried a lot out and there, there are some that I, that I feel more comfortable in than others, or I can feel more, more breath coming through than others. But I think they just ventilator um, recommendations too, is now they're not recommending masks that have those ventilators on them. Yeah. We, we talked about that in an episode here because it actually lets, it, it lets droplets out. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, those those are not meant for for medical purposes. They're meant for people who work in like construction and stuff. So, yeah, that's that's a good one. So I don't know. I don't know exactly how the um, immune system works per se in every detail, but from my understanding is that if you can get your body in a place where your immune system isn't so busy to begin with, you give it a better chance at fighting off something new with all of its attention, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it kind of describes the immune system as its own entity, but it's a system, I think, in our bodies, isn't it? Yeah. Well, so you I would mean, know more about that. Well, I mean, I, I, I do a whole, I did a whole little series of little two minute episodes about, about what the autonomic nervous system is. I think it's very important for people to understand that sort of balancing act between the fight or flight response and our resting, digesting functions. Because when we are in, in sort of high stress mode or when, when we're sort of stressing our bodies by the things that we put into it or whatever the case is or what the environments are that we're in or, you know, what the state of politics is, you know, all these things can really wear on us. And I think we have to manage that to some extent or we can kind of wear down all the, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an energetic, you know, there's an energetic component to how well our body can sort of self-manage because what the, you know, the amazing thing is that our body is self-healing all the time without us having to really put any thought or effort into. And we can, we can set up environments for that kind of healing. So if anyone's interested in learning more, go back in 
and look at some of those those short episodes. And there's a I, there's quite a few people who have been on the podcast who talk about that kind of stuff. But yeah, it it is a number of systems sort of working in coordination, and and it's what happens when when someone you know gets hit with something like this that you know that chooses you as as the host that starts to work on all these systems you know in 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 coordination over time and then if you if you have challenges that's what becomes a real struggle is that your your body gets so exhausted trying to put out all these different fires that it just starts to wear you down yeah and you know i i i recognize that you know this was something that like it's not 100% avoidable we do our best to mitigate the risk. We do right, our best to right. protect ourselves and our family. And I am so heartbroken that we lost my mom when she probably had a good at least 15 years left. Yeah. At least. Yeah. It's it's shocking. And it feels a little bit preventable. Yeah. Like maybe we could have held her in a in a safer space just a little bit longer. I know. Not that to, not that I have any kind of expectations that tomorrow will bring some kind of a huge breakthrough, but that maybe, you know, there will be something down the line that will make this uh, more manageable, like that 1912 flu or right. the flu, the, the Spanish flu. Yeah. Did I get my year right, at least? I think it was 1918, somewhere around 18, there. The flu of 1918, that's right. Um, you know, it's... It's not that it just suddenly disappeared. Right. It became something that we can manage. Yeah. And that we can come back from and bounce back from and not have such a, uh, we just, we know what to do with it. Yeah. Well, and it's helpful. And and part of the reason why I really appreciate that you, you know, took such good notes and were willing to do this because... I, th- I think it does help us to 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 get this information, and I mean, we try to we try to glean as much as we can from news articles and things. But I actually don't think, and you know, and I'm looking at medical journals and things to to get a, to go a little bit deeper a lot of times. But you know, if, if for the average reader, you're not getting that much of this information from from your media sources, your news feeds and stuff. And I and I think if people really I mean, there's there's a few things that I thought that that you could provide. I mean, one w- with your experience to to help people understand that, you know, just just I mean, everything. I I, I really didn't quite have a sense of of what the whole timeline was of what you guys went through, of the different steps that people went through, and I think that's kind of important. And even you know maybe being able to you know to be able to spot certain things a little bit sooner. And to understand that, you know, while someone may not seem even that immune compromised, you know, if 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 there's a challenge and if the and if the hospitals can can handle you, it might be worth you know getting in sooner. And and you know, obviously there are certain situations where, it, you know, if if you can be at home, I think that's that's you know the you know probably the best place you can heal if things don't you know get worse and you don't want to increase exposure. But for, yeah. you know, with someone someone like your mom, I feel like you know, I think you guys you guys did I think almost the perfect timeline. Like you you did exactly what needed to be done. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there are a lot of people who are, are waiting even much longer than than you guys did. So I think it's important for people to 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 realize that 
like you're saying, like these, these people aren't, there's, there's no conspiracy to kill people here. This is, this is, you know, these people are doing everything in, that they can to, to help. Yeah. And I think that it's also important to know where your limits lie as far as being able to take care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And um, that there, there is an aspect with COVID and I don't want to say this with any confidence of a scientist, but it seems to be that across the board, the symptom that's not always the easiest to see so physically is that level of oxygen in your blood. So that's why, you know, Amazon is practically sold out of oximeters right. at any given time. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It, it's important to track your vitals, even if you're not used to doing it. Right. Yep. I've never in my life owned an oximeter until this happened. <laughs> I know. I know. And it was also the... I didn't have one at the time that my mom was here. So it wasn't a um, a symptom that we can catch so easily and measure. Yeah. But it is what was out of control as well. Yeah. But it might be something for people to consider if they are, you know, care a caregiver for an, an elderly parent right now. Um, mm-hmm. to, to just have one around, or if you have any other, you know, pre-existing conditions yourself, you know, we've, I've talked about it on the podcast a little bit, but they're, they're, what was yours like 20 bucks probably? Yeah. I don't remember. Something Maybe like even that. less. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not expensive, but they're, they, 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 they do give you with, and then you just put it on your finger and you can, you can get information very quickly that way, just in case you're concerned or in case you haven't, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and really struggling. It's, it's a simple one to have. Right. That you don't, uh, and with this, you don't always get to find, wait until you get your results to really start treating yourself. That's, that's another piece for sure. Yeah. Well, we can't wait to see you on the other side of all this. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Lots, lots of, lots of hugs and uh, we'll we'll go do some fun stuff. Hugs? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Bella. We miss you. We miss you too. Thank you, Bella, for your strength and willingness to share your story. It was very healing to connect with you in this way right now. It's a lot to go through, and I hope that this helps all of you listening stay strong, stay safe, do what you can to prevent the spread of the virus until we understand the science better. And we will, and the other side is going to be amazing. And please, think of each other. And before you offer opinions, consider that the person that you're talking to may have already been affected by this virus. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends.